Friends, hear these words from the book of Jonah. Happens to be the same book that we're going to look at together today. Hear these words as God calls us to worship. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You realize that all of us are looking for salvation in one way or another. Either we think we can save ourselves, therefore we try to find meaning and purpose in our jobs or in our relationships, And in finding purpose and meaning in those, we feel as though we have been saved from something. When we gather for worship, we are being reminded that true, deep salvation, meaning, purpose, hope, is actually only found in the Lord, in something outside of ourselves. And what that means is that God then desires that we confess before him how we try to find salvation in other things. And that when we gather, we are admitting that we do that, and we are admitting that we can only find salvation in God. So if you would, let's acknowledge our shortcomings and sins together, our brokenness together. And we do that knowing that we find hope in God. We find forgiveness. We find in Him true life. So if you would, let's read together this confession of sin. Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, in love, you have ordered every step of our lives, but we want to chart our own course. You have promised that all things work together for our good, but when things are not to our liking, we are easily angered and often try to run from you. Forgive us. Teach us to trust in your goodness Convince us that in Christ, you are pursuing and loving us. Remind us that the cross and empty tomb overthrow sin and the grip it has on our lives. Remind us that the cross and empty tomb define and transform us. Help us cling to you because Christ has laid hold of us. All is grace. Amen. Let's take a few moments now and more privately and more personally acknowledge our shortcomings before God. Maybe there's something that went on this past week. Maybe there's some frustration in your heart. Maybe there's some guilt that you have for something that you've said or done. Now is the time in which you can confess that to the Lord. You will find grace. And it's also a time in which you can ask God to search your heart. These words at the front stood out to me. Oftentimes, in love, you have ordered every step of our lives, but we want to chart our own course. Maybe you can meditate on that and think about how God has ordered our lives, but yet so often we want what we want. Let's take time to be personal and private with our God now. Gracious God, it is good to be still and to know that you are God. It is good to be still and listen to the things that you bring to our minds. 
we know, Holy Spirit, that you are at work bringing us to a gracious God. We know that you are at work helping us to see our need for Jesus. So we thank you that we can confess our sins, not only together, verbally, but also personally and privately. We thank you for hearing us. We acknowledge all before you, all that we know before you, because we have hope in your mercy, because we have hope in your grace. We have hope because our Christ is alive, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, our God is a forgiving God. Salvation belongs to him. And even though you may not be able to find forgiveness in many places or with many people in your life, you can always find forgiveness and hope in God. Hear this assurance of pardon and know that it is real and it is true. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That name under heaven is Jesus. Our hope is in him. Amen. Having acknowledged, confessed, our sin, having received and heard the assurance of pardon. Beloved, let us declare what we know is true about our lives in Christ. I'll ask you the question, please respond with the answer. What is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because we belong to Christ, by his Holy Spirit, he assures us of eternal life and makes us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. It is true. Our only comfort, our only hope in life and in death is the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, beloved, we get to look together at the book of Jonah. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. I'm going to read the last chapter of the book, chapter 4. And perhaps for some of you that might be surprising because oftentimes our children's books and the way that Jonah, the story of Jonah is often presented, ends with chapter 3. So I decided to read chapter 4 this morning. So I'm going to read this to you. I want to remind you that we are still in our trek through the Bible. We're still spending this whole year looking through the story of Scripture together. Remember the three loves, love God, love people, love place. Remember the four-part story. Please don't turn this into a two-part story. Be open to the idea that if you've learned the two-part story, that there are two more parts. Those four parts are creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. We have to buy in 
to those four parts if we're going to understand the totality of reality. Five threads. That we see five threads throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of the stories. That God has always had a people. He's always building his church. Evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Four, he did it. Jesus accomplished something. He really said, it is finished. He did it. Five, everything, and I mean everything, both in Scripture, our lives, reality itself, everything is moving toward Jesus. So if you remember three, four, and five, you'll understand the framework for looking through the scriptures together. So listen to this. This is God's word. It's true. It is what gives us life. So let's receive it from him. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. And sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You'll notice those last two verses were taken from the Gospel of Matthew. It's where Jesus was having an encounter with religious leaders. 
And he decided to draw from this very book that we're looking at today and talk about Jonah. So I thought it was important that we not only read the last chapter of Jonah, but also hear the words from our Lord and what he thinks about Jonah and how that impacts his own ministry. So if you would, let's pray together and then we'll dive in. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are good and gracious and kind. We thank you that you look upon us in mercy, that you offer hope, that you make promises that never go away, that you grant us your spirit to understand your thoughts, to think about reality the way you do. So we ask that you would indeed act on us. Make us to see Christ, the one whom we have confessed that we believe and hope and trust in. And help us, Lord, by increasing our faith, by empowering us to live for Christ and to know that you are working in us to make us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus in whose name that we pray, amen. Where are you going? That's the question that I want you to think about. Where am I going? Where are you going? I'm not asking that question because I want you to give me the answer of where you're going in your career and what you hope to accomplish. I'm not asking you that question because I want to know your five or ten year plan, the one that kind of corresponds with whatever you think you're doing in your career, the one that your career enables you to have this five or ten year plan. They work together in life. I'm not looking for that answer. Matter of fact, I just had a birthday this past week, so I've been thinking about where am I going? I've had time to reflect and self-assess and think. You see, the book of Jonah is about direction. This whole book is talking to us about direction. Where are we going? But the question, where are we going, is really about the heart. In particular, the question, where are we going, is really about the trajectory of our hearts. And the answer that this book gives The answer to the question, where are we going? Where is the trajectory of our heart? Where is it headed? Where are we going? What direction is our heart going? The answer that this book gives is actually one that you might not expect. It's an answer that might be a little bit confusing. It might be disorienting. The answer that this book gives to that question is this. Our hearts need to be overthrown. Where are we going? Where's the, where's the trajectory of our heart? The answer is our hearts need to be overthrown. I'm going to try to show that to you this morning. As odd as that answer may sound, as disequilibrating as that answer may be, I'm going to try to show it to you from the book of Jonah. So we're going to go through the story, and then I have three takeaways for us. So let's dive into the story. And before we look at chapter 4, let's remember what happens in the first three chapters. In chapter 1, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. 
Jonah, go to Nineveh. Proclaim my message. Jonah decides he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He wants to go a different direction. He's supposed to go east to go to Nineveh. He decides, I'm going west to Spain, to Tarshish. So what he does is he goes down to the boatyard and he realizes that the cost, the fare that it takes to go to Spain is exactly the same amount of money that he has in his pocket. So he pays the fare. He gets on the boat and he starts heading west, the opposite direction of where God wants him to go. While he's on that boat, there's a storm that comes. And the storm is incredibly violent. Seems like that it comes out of nowhere. Well, the sailors understand that something is abnormal about this storm. Something isn't right. So they do all kinds of things and ultimately figure out this is because of Jonah. Maybe it's because they went down and woke him up and said, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are you, where are you from? What are you doing? Jonah ended up saying to them, I'm the real problem here, guys. The problem is with me. The storm is here because of me. Your lives are in danger because of me. So Jonah tells the sailors to throw him overboard, throw him into the sea. I don't know about you, but if I had been a sailor, doesn't matter how violent the storm was, I would have a hard time throwing someone overboard into the sea, into the violent storm. But the sailors did it. They threw Jonah overboard, and it was there that a fish swallowed him whole. And we find that Jonah spends roughly three days in the belly of a fish. And it's there that Jonah prays to God. We have that recorded for us in chapter 2. And then, after a few days in the belly of the fish where Jonah is praying and he's seeking God and he's remembering certain things and there are even things that we've read today already in the call to worship that come from that chapter 2 where Jonah's praying. He's remembering the goodness of God. He's remembering that salvation comes from God. Well, after a few days, the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land. So in chapter 3, Jonah's on dry land, and now he decides he is going to go to, to Nineveh. So he makes it to Nineveh, which at that day and time was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it's a huge city. The text tells us that it takes multiple days to walk through the city of Nineveh. So Jonah goes into the city after he gets about a day's worth of travel in, he proclaims the message that God gave him. We have a summary of that message around verse 4 of chapter 3. Jonah says to them, Yet forty days, and you shall be overthrown. Forty days, and you shall be overthrown. Now that word overthrown is profoundly significant. It ties into our answer to the question, where are we going? Where's the trajectory of our heart? And I said the answer is something that you don't expect. The answer is that our hearts need to be overthrown. 
That's exactly what happens here with what Jonah preaches to the people of Nineveh. That word overthrown can convey two things. It means that someone can be stopped. It also conveys the idea of being transformed. In other words, there are things in our lives that need to be stopped. And there's a lot about our hearts that need to be transformed. So Jonah proclaims this message and people hear the message and they are transformed. They're stopped in their tracks and their hearts are transformed. And whether it's the king or the common person, whether it's person that has a, a place of position or whether it is a child from the greatest to the least, no matter male or female, no matter what job you're in, people were changed. People's lives were transformed. The city was so deeply affected. And Jonah was mad. You see, that's where we pick up the story. I read to you Jonah chapter 4. It starts out by saying these words, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Jonah proclaimed God's word and people's lives were radically changed and Jonah was displeased with that. Matter of fact, he wasn't only displeased, he was angry, exceedingly angry. And this whole chapter, chapter 4, tells us just how angry Jonah was. He was so angry that after he proclaimed the message and he saw that people's lives were transformed, he decided to leave Nineveh and set up shop on the east side of the city, outside the city limits. And he built himself a makeshift tent because he wanted to sit there and see what would happen to the people of Nineveh. Because what he wanted to happen to the Ninevites is that they would be wiped out. It's like he wanted fire to rain down out of the heavens. He wanted meteors to come down and strike the people of Nineveh and remove them. Jonah didn't like the people of Nineveh. He didn't like what had happened. He didn't want people to be transformed. He was so angry. And two times in this chapter, God says to him, Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Are you sure that it's okay that you're angry? And both times, Jonah says, yes. Matter of fact, Jonah is angry enough to die. And that's the end. That's the end of the book. That's the story. It ends from Jonah's perspective with him being furious. And might I add, the book ends with Jonah being angry about something that's good. Well, let's get into the takeaways. I have three takeaways for you. Remember, we're thinking about this question where are you going? And that question is about your heart. What's the trajectory of your heart? And the answer is that God's trying to teach us that our hearts need to be overthrown. And that means that there are things in our lives that need to be stopped. And it means that there are 
things in our lives in which our heart needs to be transformed. So let's look at these takeaways with that in mind. The first takeaway is this, grace. If we're going to figure out the direction of our lives, which means if we're going to understand the direction of our heart, the only way that our hearts are going to be overthrown is by grace. And this book teaches us so many profound things about grace that I can just mention three for you. The first one is this. This book teaches us that the grace of God first tells us no before it tells us yes. Look at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2. Here's one place where we see this. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Jonah's first words to Nineveh in chapter 3, the summary, is that he declared something against them. The grace of God comes into our lives and first tells us no. The grace of God is not God winking at our sin. The grace of God is not a wink at our rebellion. God's grace is not unqualified affirmation. The grace of God is not an add-on to our lives. The grace of God comes into our lives and says, no, we are not right. In other words, when the grace of God comes into our lives and tells us no, it helps us to see who we really are Meaning, no, you're not all that you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. You're not living the life that you think you really should live. It says the grace of God convinces us of who we really are and who God is. It tells us no. It convinces us that we didn't make ourselves. We're not self-made. God made us. It tells us that we can't achieve meaning in our lives and we can't find enough to do by which we will feel as though our hearts are at rest and we have found ultimate purpose and ultimate meaning on our own. It says no. It says we've rebelled against God. We weren't just created by him. We're not self-made. We were created by God and we have rebelled against him. And we rebel against him in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. And God says, you are living in rebellion against me. He says that to me. And he says, but yet know who I am. Because the way that God says yes to us is through the work of Jesus and what Jesus has done. The way that God tells us yes is by saying that he has the power to restore who we are. You see, the grace of God first tells us no before it it tells us yes. And it reorients the totality of who we are to where we understand we were made by God. We're made for God. We have rebelled against him. And that runs our brokenness and sin are deep and that What Jesus has done had to be done 
his life and his death and his resurrection in order for us to be changed. And that means we have hope, restoration. It's not in us. Our hope is not in us. Our hope is in God. So we have to be overthrown. We have to hear the no before we hear the yes. The second thing that this teaches us about grace is that the grace of God is relentless. Whether you're thinking about Jonah, whether you're thinking about the sailors that were worshiping all kinds of other gods and crying out to their gods and praying to all, everything else when the storm came, you realize going and waking up Jonah was their last resort. <laughs> crying out to the living God ultimately is where they landed because they tried everything else. Isn't that true for a lot of us? Well, God was frustrated with Jonah. He was frustrated with the sailors. He was frustrated with Nineveh. And God's first instinct was not to wipe them out. What God did is he pursued. God continued to pursue Jonah. He pursued Jonah when Jonah was trying to go the opposite direction. He pursued Jonah when Jonah was on the east side of the city in chapter 4 that we read together. And he was waiting there for Nineveh to be overthrown. God was still pursuing Jonah by asking him questions, by raising up a better covering for Jonah sitting in the hot sun than what Jonah could make for himself. He was pursuing Jonah. God was pursuing the Ninevites even through this really angry guy. God was pursuing relentless pursuit, even using someone like Jonah, who was so angry and self-centered. Friends, the grace of God is relentless. He continues to pursue you and me. He's going to continue to find things in our lives to say no to and to remind us of the yes that we have in Jesus God is relentless with his grace. It's never stopping, always and forever. The third thing that we learn is this about grace. Our view of grace is most clearly expressed in what we want for those that we like least. I'm sure I read that somewhere at some time. Perhaps it's my own version of it. I don't know. But it profoundly, profoundly affected me. Our view of grace is most clearly expressed in what we want for those we like least. You do realize that Jonah was profoundly angry, angry enough to die, angry enough to feel justified in his death at something that was very, very good. The people of Nineveh were transformed and changed. Now, maybe that just sounds amazing to me because I always want to see God work through things that I do and things that I say through my teaching or preaching. I've never seen anything in my life like what happened with Jonah. 
than what happened with Jonah and Nineveh. Maybe it's just me, but I think it's true. We can get angry at things that are very, very good, profoundly good. Maybe we need to do a deep dive into our own lives and think about, do we ever get angry at things that are actually good? Maybe we need to do a deep dive and think about, why am I angry? You know, because most of us are more angry than we care to admit. Most of us can put on a pretty good front as if we're not that angry at all. But deep down, we have these triggers, right? We have these triggers that trigger the anger that's deep within. We read the story about Jonah, and we read these good things that happened, how people's lives were radically changed. They went from going one direction of not following God to going the other direction and following God. Remember a couple weeks ago, we found out that was repentance and belief, and Jonah was angry. It reminds me of the story that we've talked about quite a bit in the Gospels in Luke chapter 15. Remember the story. It's probably, you probably read the book Prodigal God. You've probably thought about this story before. If you haven't read that book, please do. It's the story of the father that has two sons. Remember the one son, the younger son, took the inheritance from the father and squandered it. He Use the money to satisfy every desire that you could possibly have because he thought that he could make himself happy. Satisfying every sexual desire, satisfying every desire to party with other people and get hammered. He did everything he could with that money to satisfy every craving he had, and it got him nowhere. He ended up returning home. Remember this? And he returned home and his father welcomed him. His father brought him back into the family. But do you remember the older brother? The older brother was mad. The older brother was angry. He wouldn't come to the celebration. He wouldn't come to the celebration that was going on because his younger brother had returned. He was mad at something that is good. You see, that story is showing us, it's illustrating what's happening here with Jonah, with us. The older brother got mad, and that exposed the trajectory of his heart. The trajectory of his heart was away from his father, away from God, and toward self. The trajectory of his heart was away from what God did and what God said, what his father did and said, and it was toward what he thought should happen to his brother. The trajectory of his heart was anger because he thought he knew what should happen to his brother. Better. He had a better idea of what should happen than what his dad did. He thought that he knew better about what his life deserved as the older brother, the one that didn't run away. The trajectory of his heart was thinking that his own opinions about life, his brother, his dad, himself, his obedience, how he was living his life, he thought his own opinions were better than his father's. See, the trajectory of his heart was being exposed. He was angry at something that was good. 
And friends, the danger that we have is that we have so much of the older brother in us that over time, we subtly and slowly begin to trust our own opinions and our own preferences about what should happen in other people's lives, what should happen in our lives, and we slowly and subtly begin to equate our preferences and our opinions and our views as the Christian answer. The older brother was angry. Jonah was angry because the trajectory of his heart was away from God and towards self. I heard this a long time ago. Actually, the person that said it was very old. I heard this recently. It goes like this. How many times in our life with God do we start off realizing that we are beggars that tell other beggars where to find bread? And somewhere along the way, we become former beggars that tell beggars why they need bread. Beloved, we all need to do a deep dive search into our own anger and realize that our view of grace is most clearly expressed by what we want for those we like least. And how many times we get angry about something that's good just because our own opinions or preferences aren't being heard or followed well that's grace takeaway number two is this God deals with us in deeply personal ways I'll say it this way autobiographical you see when you go back and think about the book of Jonah Where do you think we get the details of what was said so specifically when Jonah was in the belly of the fish? Where where do you think we get those details? Where do you think we get the details about Jonah's interaction with God and the details that are there in chapter 4 about what Jonah was thinking and feeling and what God was questioning him and how he was responding. Where do you think we get those details? The book of Jonah was probably written by Jonah. It was autobiographical. He's the one that wrote this book. And what that means is that God had dealt with him deeply and personally. You see, the grace of God was working in Jonah's life. The grace of God had freed Jonah from trying to present himself as something that he was not. The grace of God freed Jonah from thinking that he needed to write the story in a particular way so that other people would approve of him. The grace of God was at 
work in Jonah's life in a deep, deep way so that Jonah could say, yep, this is me. This is what happened. This was my attitude. This is what I did. This is how I ran. This is why I got angry. This is what I said. Because, because of the grace of God at work in Jonah's life, Jonah didn't write himself as the hero of the story. You read the book of Jonah and you realize Jonah is far from being the hero here. God is the hero. God is the hero, not Jonah. And what that means is that we are not supposed to think of ourselves as the big takeaway is be like Jonah. No, the big takeaway is we are like Jonah. The big takeaway is we are Jonah and we need a hero and his name is God. You see, we're always looking for something that is greater than Jonah. And that brings us to the third takeaway. We have someone that is greater than Jonah. Where are we going? Where's the trajectory of our heart? What, what direction? Where's that? Where's our heart going? Our hearts need to be overthrown. Meaning there's some things that need to be stopped and other things that need to be transformed. And the only way that that happens is through Jesus. The only way we're changed, that's completely determined. The only way that we're changed is by Christ and what he has done. Change is determined by Jesus. You see, we need a greater than Jonah. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 12. You've heard of Jonah being in the belly of the fish? Well, I will be in the belly of the earth. You see, we need a greater than Jonah. A greater than Jonah has come. Think about how Jesus is greater than Jonah. Let me give you a couple of these. Jonah was supposed to pursue people. He didn't. Reluctantly. Angrily. But we have a Savior that pursues us willingly. Relentlessly. Jonah didn't want to submit to God. Even at the end of the story, he didn't want to submit to God. But yet Jesus willingly submitted to the Father to accomplish the work of redemption. Jonah was supposed to preach grace. Jesus came as the embodiment of grace. Jesus came to show grace, to proclaim grace, to live out grace. Grace for people like you and me. Jonah's relationship to death, well, he was so destructive with his life that he put sailors in danger. Jonah was so angry at times in his life that he wanted other people to die because he thought they were worse than he was. Jesus came to take death for people like you and me. 
outside of the fish miraculously vomiting Jonah, he would have died and he probably would have been super happy. Jesus conquered death because death had no hold on him. We need someone greater than Jonah. The direction of our hearts is determined by Jesus. You see, at the end of the day, our hearts are either going toward Jesus or away from him. Either our lives are saying, Jesus, go away. I want my anger. Jesus, go away. I want to do my thing. I want my life to be about me. I know you want me to go this way, but I want to go the opposite way. Either our lives, either our hearts are saying, Jesus, go away from me, or Jesus, I want to go with you. And I want you with me in everything. And maybe it's here that it fits so well. That one thing that stands out that we hadn't talked about yet about this whole book. Is that in God's relentless grace and in God's summoning Jonah and his God's message. He not only loved Jonah, sailors, Ninevites. He loved the city. You notice how God challenges Jonah at the end? Jonah, you care about a plant that you didn't set up. Don't you think I should care about people that are made in my image? Jonah, you love this thing that you didn't even know existed. Doesn't it make sense that I should love people that are made in my image and love this city where they reside, where there are 120,000? Which is, you know, not that far away from our city, is it? God wants us to have a disposition of loving place. And this is not a huge pregame speech. This isn't a pep rally. We're going to go conquer this. No, this is a reminder that we are supposed to be aware of the place where God has put us. Always, from the garden, all the way to the city to come. That God wants us to care about place. And that means fulfill your calling. That means think about where you live. It means don't skip over what's right in front of you. It means be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. God loves place. And part of our transformation is loving place too. Thinking about where are the holes in the place that we live? Where's the hole in the heart of Greenville? How can we take the gospel there? Where's the hole in our own hearts? How can the gospel go there? You see, at the end of the day, this story is all about God. And it's pointing us to what Jesus has done. And it's in Jesus that we have change and hope. One man described the book of Jonah in this way. 
when you try to go your own way, you never really get where you're going, and you always pay for everything. But when we follow God, we always get where we are supposed to go, and God always pays everything. Friends, that's true because of what Christ has done. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that you are loving, kind, and gracious. That you are the one who pursues and changes. You are the one that makes us new so that we acknowledge that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, are real and true. That reality is informed by your creation, by our rebellion, by your redemption, and by your restoration. Change the trajectory of our heart, Lord. Stop things that we're doing and transform other things. That we might have your heart for your people and your place and your world. Ever, ever more and ever increasing for your glory. Amen. Friends, know that God is determined to work in your life, that the gospel, the good news is real, and that our lives by God's grace are shaped by that good news. So as you fulfill your callings this week, know that God's blessing is upon you and try to live as if you actually believe what he says he's going to do in you because of Jesus is true. So hear this. Now the God of peace that raised Jesus from the dead, because of the blood of Christ, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, he is equipping you with every good thing you need to do his will. It's even better. He's working in you what is pleasing in his sight. So that one day, all glory will go to him. One day our Christ will return and make all things new. The day is coming. The day is coming. Amen. Go in his peace.